0: You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast a production of the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu.
1: Our speaker today is Christoph Lindner. He's a professor of literature and the director of the Amsterdam School for Cultural Analysis at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. I got to know Christoph uh, a year ago when I was doing a visiting uh, professorship at, uh, in the English department at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, um, while I was there, Christoph's elevation to director of the Amsterdam School of Col- Cultural Analysis was announced. And it struck me then when it happened that uh, it was a particularly rich venue for someone with Christoph's wide range of interests. And I'm sure some of that will be reflected in the talk he's going to give today. He's a research affiliate also at the University of London Institute in Paris. His recent books include Globalization, Violence, and the Visual Culture of Cities, and Urban Space and Cityscapes, finally, Fictions of Commodity Culture. So he's both a literary and a cultural historian. Uh, whose work has uh, enlarged and expanded uh, as he as his a, a, as he's as he's as he's aged and as his and, and as his work has has deepened. It's a, uh, his his talk today uh, is titled "Amsterdam and New York: Transnational Photographic Exchange in the Era of Globalization."
2: Thank you, David. Can I check before I start that you can hear me? Okay. Alright. I, I kind of like that you're all sort of spread out, because as you'll see during the course of this talk, it actually resonates with one of the themes I'm going to be talking about, which is kind of isolation and estrangement. So knowingly or not, you're doing the right thing. Um, and before I start, I want to say a little bit about uh, the context for this talk, and in particular to give you some orientation about my disciplinary perspective. But before all of that, thank you very much for coming and thanks for the very kind introduction. Um, So as David mentioned, one of my jobs is as the director of the Amsterdam School for Cultural Analysis. And what ASCA is, is a humanities research institute and doctoral school that is devoted to the interdisciplinary study of modern and contemporary culture. And within ASCO, we have a whole range of, of research projects running, between 30 and 35 projects. One of those is called the Cities Project, and that's a project that I coordinate. And in the Cities Project, the idea really was to create a space within the humanities for people working on urban topics to get together. And one of the themes that we have that that, that brings us together as researchers is trying to identify what we're calling new directions in urbanism. We're trying to figure out not just what the city is today, but where it's going in the coming years. And within that, a particular concern is globalization and the phenomenon of the global city. So figuring out how globalization is reshaping cities, and in particular, the culture of cities, but at the same time, how the culture of cities is perhaps influencing or having an impact on the processes and conditions of globalization. So that's the kind of background for where this talk comes from. That's the context, really, for my interest in transnational relations or exchanges between these two cities, Amsterdam and New York. And I'm going to be looking at photography, uh, partly because I think, well, I like images, but also because I think it's, it's one particular form of cultural production that in contemporary visual culture is very interesting for exploring forms of transnational exchange. So that's really a long-winded way of saying that the talk today is about globalization and cities, and that it's also about art and tourism. So those are my two sets of concerns. And addressing these two sets of concerns in relation to Amsterdam and then, in a more indirect way, New York, my aim is to examine the impact of globalization on the urban imaginary. And all I mean by urban imaginary is simply the way that we perceive, interpret, and perhaps most importantly, imagine uh, our urban environments. I should also explain that this interest in contemporary reshapings of the urban imaginary is connected to broader concerns with the role that transnational exchange can play in both resisting and reinforcing dominant, globalised images of city space. So, with these ideas in mind, my focus today is a recent art exhibition titled New York Perspectives. And it's an exhibition that was commissioned by the Amsterdam city government in 2009 in which a group of contemporary New York artists were invited to photograph Amsterdam to mark the 400th anniversary of Henry Hudson's discovery of Manhattan in 1609. Now, Hudson was not Dutch, he was an Englishman, but he was working for the Dutch East India Company based in Amsterdam when he stumbled across Manhattan Bay. So one of the ideas behind the New York Perspectives exhibition was to celebrate the very long history of transnational exchange that has existed between the two cities, and it's a history dating all the way back to New York's origins as a 17th century Dutch trading post and to the transatlantic flow of people, money, and goods that this early
1: colonial enterprise
2: set in motion. That's one idea behind the exhibition. The other idea, behind the New York Perspectives exhibit, was to create a reciprocal event, a kind of mirroring effect, with another exhibit that took place in New York earlier in the same year. And it was titled Dutch Scene. And it was hosted by the Museum of the City of New York. This was also in 2009. And it invited a group of Dutch photographers, to offer a portrait of contemporary New York, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later on. For now, what's important to note are the chronology and the geography. So first, we have a group of Dutch artists photographing uh, New York, and then six months later, a group of New York artists photographing Amsterdam. Now, the reciprocity is far from coincidental, Both exhibitions were jointly organized by FOAM, which is the Amsterdam Photography Museum. And this picture here is really just there gratuitously because everybody in Amsterdam has a bike, including museums. And I love the fact that it's parked right out front, in front of the front door. But both events were were organized by FOAM. Both were deliberately timed to coincide with the quadricentennial celebrations being carried out in both cities. And these involved a transatlantic program of cultural events organized by the New York 400 Initiative. And the New York 400 Initiative was a Dutch government-funded PR operation stressing the shared histories of New York and Amsterdam in the form of highly sensational touristic encounters with a cultural twist. So in New York, these events included things like Dutch ice skating in the Big Apple. And I don't actually understand what makes the ice skating Dutch, but there you go. There was also the Taste New Amsterdam Festival, my favorite, the New Amsterdam Bike Slam, and then the hip and exclusive sounding New York 400 After Party. And uh, behind me now is a screenshot advertising this. And then back in Amsterdam, the events included New York themed concerts, parties, and performances, as well as the Yankees Comeback Festival, which was not very popular. And the American Breakfast Lectures, which was much more popular because it involved pancakes and politics. And to give you a sense of how the city was trying to promote the New York 400 celebrations, I just want to show you now a a short video clip uh, that was available online promoting the New York 400 um, celebrations.
1: all these statues of liberty coming by. Wow, good morning. (laughs) It's a breath of uh, fresh air and uh...
2: The website still exists and is still active if you actually want to explore a little bit more the kinds of things involved. And I'm showing this video not to detour away from the topic of photography, but because I want to place the Amsterdam and New York exhibitions in the broader context of the marketing campaigns in which they were caught up. And these are campaigns that sought to plug Amsterdam and New York into a global matrix of branded city spaces. So, for example, the fact that the New York 400 events held in America were also advertised and promoted in the Netherlands via Amsterdam's main tourist portal, which is the iAmsterdam website, this says something about the campaign's transnational aspirations and influences. First... The I Amsterdam campaign, which is Amsterdam's official vehicle for promoting the city to international tourists, deliberately draws on the aesthetics and semantics of the I heart New York phenomenon. And the use of English language further indicates the international orientation of the slogan. It's not in Dutch. And then finally, the words themselves, I Amsterdam, work as an explicit invitation for the visitor to occupy a subject position in relation to the city. So the heart of I Heart New York is replaced with the AM, this declaration of urban subjectivity of I Amsterdam. In an interesting twist, a local resident group launched a counter-campaign a few years ago called I Amsterdam. And this counter-campaign makes even more transparent the intertextual, intercultural resonances with I Heart New York, while at the same time highlighting the tension involved in Amsterdam's city branding efforts and its tension between, on the one hand, the desire of the city government to construct Amsterdam as an urban playground and ossified museum city, kind of Las Vegas meets Venice, and then, on the other hand, the desire of many residents to reclaim the city from the grip of international tourism. So here, the heart in the I Amsterdam logo is obviously an import from New York, and it's used in much the same way to express personal connection and emotional investment in the city. And then further, the linguistic reorientation of the English sound I into the Dutch sound I which means ouch, ow. It transforms the assertion of self into an expression of pain. I think that's kind of interesting. So, as this language play suggests, the goal of the counter-campaign is to reappropriate the city, while at the same time giving voice to the discomfort that's caused to many residents by what they see as Amsterdam's excessive touristic orientation. Reconciling these two attitudes towards the city, one that invites global access, and one that resists it, is something that preoccupies Amsterdam city government still today. And a very good example of that is the city's latest move to clean up the red-light district. And the way they're trying to do it is by performing something of a Times Square disnification on the space of decriminalized drugs and prostitution. And it highlights some of the contradictions involved in Amsterdam's double tourist identity as Sin City and Art City. So over the last few years, the city government has been involved in buying out brothel owners in the Red Light District and transforming the buildings into galleries and workspaces for artists and fashion designers. And parallel to this development, there's been a related effort to integrate more upscale, yuppie-friendly dining and retail opportunities into the sidewalk mix of coffee shops, fast food joints, erotic supermarkets, nightclubs, and brothels. And the idea is not to get rid of the sex and drug strains, but instead to temper their dominance of the streetscape with other more palatable, more marketable forms of edginess. And in this case, it's the trend-driven edginess brought by artists, designers, restaurateurs, and boutiquists. I'm not quite sure if that's actually a word, but if you own a boutique, I imagine that makes you a boutiqueist. So this experiment is ongoing, and as you might imagine, it has not been a smooth process, with artists and designers in particular complaining of the city using them just to sell another cleaner, more mainstream version of the Red Light District. And so, for example, the area was featured very prominently on the TV show America's Next Top Model when it came to town. And I think it says something about the attempts to kind of mainstream the Red Light District uh, um, to make it actually acceptable to be broadcast as a kind of urban space in the context of that program on American terrestrial TV. But the broader attempt to re-theme the red-light district is what's significant here because it not only brings into focus the contradictory images of the city that have been promoted and maintained by the tourist and city branding industries, but it also brings into focus the difficulties posed in trying to reconcile those images. But ultimately, I would say that the re of the red-light district, which is still very much ongoing, that this re much like the Disneyfication of Times Square has less to do with making social improvements than it does with ensuring the growth and the sustainability of mass tourism. So, moving back to the main topic of the talk, transnational photographic exchange, I want to make one final point about Amsterdam city marketing and it relates directly to the photographs that I want to look at next. The iAmsterdam campaign functioned as a larger framework within which the New York 400 program of events operated. And this is why I find it very interesting that on both sides of the Atlantic, so much of the New York 400 program was aimed at selling or even creating a sense of otherworldliness in a familiar city. And in this case, by playing up the residual Dutchness of New York and the latent New Yorkness Of Amsterdam. And I think this last idea is graphically registered in the New York Nights advertising poster displayed behind me now, which promises to transform nighttime Amsterdam into some kind of after hours New York. And the reason this is interesting is because the same idea, the idea of defamiliarizing or creating a defamiliarizing encounter with the familiar city what we might otherwise call an encounter with the urban uncanny, informs both of the exhibitions I want to talk to next. and I should explain that here I'm using the word uncanny in the Freudian sense of a disorienting encounter with the familiar made newly strange and alien. My argument is that the defamiliarizing images featured in both exhibitions, but especially those from the Amsterdam show, are ultimately in tune with the aesthetic and commercial needs of the tourist and city branding industries. And this is not despite their uncanny properties. It is because of their uncanny properties. And that's basically what I want to argue. And to illustrate this, I'll look first at the Dutch Scene exhibition and then in a little more depth at the New York Perspectives exhibition. So Dutch Scene presented the work of 13 contemporary Dutch photographers who were asked to rediscover New York through the lens of the classical tradition of Dutch Golden Age painting, a period of artistic blossoming in the Netherlands, corresponding historically to the foundation of, or the founding of New Amsterdam. The show's subtitle "New York Rediscovered" is therefore significant because, at one level, it signals the historical circularity of the Dutch presence in New York. And at another level, it comments obliquely on the deep familiarity of the city, not only in the American visual imagination, but also in the lives and work of these Dutch photographers, many of whom had strong professional ties to New York, some of whom were actually living in New York, and all of whom were well-versed in the city's rich and extended photographic history. And so this, I think, helps to explain why the show's emphasis overall was not on newness but instead on the newly defamiliarized. Of the featured photographers, Hendrik Kerstens perhaps perhaps best captures this dual concern with rediscovery and defamiliarization, especially in his engagement with the painting-photography nexus. In a series of portraits of his teenage daughter, Kerstens mimics the realist portraiture of the Dutch masters, and he's referencing such painting, paintings as Vermeer's the, M- the Milkmaid and Rembrandt's An Oriental only now reinterpreted through the medium of photography and incorporating trivial everyday objects from contemporary New York life which are whimsically placed on the subject's head so a cloth napkin from a restaurant a plastic shopping bag and my favourite bubble wrap. Now the shape and arrangement of these elements are designed to evoke 17th century fashion and aesthetics, reinforcing the photograph's intermedial links with Dutch golden age painting. At the same time, however, the choice of objects, which also included toilet paper, towels, and a lampshade, humorously undermines the generic pretensions of formal portraiture perhaps even gesturing in the process, at least this is my interpretation, at the plasticity and inauthenticity of 21st century life. But New York itself is largely absent in explicit ways from Kirsten's work, with the exception of one photograph, which features his daughter wearing a New York Yankees cap. But I would suggest that even this connection to the city is tenuous since the Yankees cap has become such a ubiquitous consumer accessory around the world that very little of its original geographic and cultural ties to New York remain. What's perhaps more interesting about this image is the way that it refigures Vermeer's work. Vermeer's early modern girl with a pearl earring becomes Kirsten's globalized girl with a baseball cap. An artist from the show who does engage in a much more direct and explicit way with New York is Jad Scheren, who is best known for his surrealist nature photography. And in this particular photo, Gantry Plaza State Park, the historical Dutch preoccupation with natural landscape is redirected at the urban environment, replicating a familiar and distancing visual perspective on Manhattan from across the water in Queens. What makes this cityscape photo more than just another tourist snapshot is the incongruous hovering presence of empty fur coats whose silhouettes parallel the undulating lines of the urban skyline in the distance behind them. The coats bring Dutch colonial history into the frame and they do it by referencing the fur trade that sustained the colonial enterprise on Manhattan in the early years of European settlement. As Schirin explains in an interview, the photo, and these are his words, bends time, bringing the past to the present and the present to the past. And in addition, I would add, it also stages a confrontation, a confrontation between New York's natural history and its urban present. In such a reading, if you really want to take it to an extreme, I think the dead animal pelts could even be seen as alluding to the violent profit-driven denaturalization of Manhattan. It kind of depends on how you interpret the significance of fur. Another artist, Vininda, uh, sorry, Vijnanda de Deru. In her work, the genre of the Dutch interior provides inspiration for a series of interior photographs of popular New York restaurants and eateries. And here, the murky, everyday world of taverns, flop houses, gambling dens, and domestic quarters so familiar in 17th-century realism is replaced by the lurid consumer spectacle of New York's fast-paced dining scene, as illustrated here in Derue's photograph of the 42nd Street papaya dog, where the overabundance of signs in the over-vivid yellow space creates an excess of visual stimulation. But there's a crucial difference between Derue's interiors and those of 17th-century Dutch painting, and the difference is the total absence of human life in Derue's work. The urban consumer spaces depicted in her photos are ones normally filled with people, spaces designed for human activity and interaction. By presenting them in this strange depopulated state, Derue is able to refocus attention on details of decor, Architecture and design, while simultaneously creating, to put this in the terms of the uncanny, a sense of homeliness unrooted. Now, in a few moments, I want to shift the discussion from New York to Amsterdam. But before I do, I'd like to make one final comment about the Dutch scene exhibition as a whole. In their efforts to rediscover, New York. The Dutch artists featured in this show do not, as a group, produce a new vision of the city. This is sort of my my view. And as one reviewer commented, quote, you won't discover much here about New York or photography that you didn't know beforehand. I tend to agree. But what you do get as a consequence of mixing Dutch aesthetic traditions into this photographic rediscovery of New York is a newly defamiliarized vision of a deeply familiar city. And this is what takes us to Amsterdam, where the New York Perspectives exhibition, which was held at the Amsterdam City Archive building, reversed the transatlantic gaze of Dutch scene by inviting a portrait of Amsterdam seen through the eyes of New York photographers. Now, despite the reciprocal nature of this project, there are a few significant differences. Unlike the Dutch artists visiting New York, the American artists visiting Amsterdam were encountering the city for the first time, and they were partly selected because of their unfamiliarity with the city. And also, compared to New York, Amsterdam is far less established in the global urban imaginary, so that its place, its meaning in visual culture, is not nearly so developed. So the New York Perspectives project is partly a response to Amsterdam's underexposure in international photography, a feature of the city that stands out even more when compared to New York's relative overexposure. The job given to the selected artists who were flown over to Amsterdam for a brief three-week visit was to produce work capable of challenging established images of the city. And the result, or so the exhibition claimed, was that this outsider perspective on Amsterdam enabled new and surprising perspectives on four key aspects of the city. And these aspects are the street, the night, the water, and the outskirts. And the photographers were invited to thematize these in their work. So the time that I have remaining, what I want to do is interrogate this claim, the idea that they were producing work capable of challenging established images of the city. And I want to do it via some analysis of individual images. And then by way of conclusion, I want to make some broader remarks on how those images connect to a new or larger trend within the globalization of cities. So I'll start with the street. Before you speak Dutch, you always need a big sip of water. Foothanger is the Dutch word for pedestrian, and foothanger means literally foot-goer. And in a series of photos titled Foothanger, Gus Powell embraces the pedestrian in the full double sense of the word, as meaning both ordinary and foot-traveller. His photos are taken as he walks the streets and public spaces of Amsterdam. They mostly depict city residents travelling on foot as they go about their everyday lives. And the photos deliberately seek out ordinary experiences and sights in the city, such as this image of a woman walking alone through through the Amsterdam Arena entertainment complex on the outskirts of the city. The design of the space, the faceless architecture and reflective materials, combined with the film poster advertising the latest 007 blockbuster, render the space indistinguishable from countless exurban zones of leisure and consumption, whether in Europe, Asia, or North America. The specificity of Amsterdam is invisible, with the exception of the Dutch text on the film poster, so that what the photo registers is less Amsterdam and more The homogenizing effects of the global metropolitan condition. But when viewed alongside other photos in the series, Amsterdam does register here in a subtle but important way, and it does so through the inclusion of reflective windows. Because alongside the theme of the pedestrian, the recurrence of windows and reflections is what links Powell's various street scenes, whether in the blurred monumentalism of Central Station, seen in the passing reflection of a cafe window, or the semi-transparent glass facade of a shoe shop. This preoccupation with reflections is connected to Powell's impression of Amsterdam as a city whose architecture of transparency mirrors the openness of Dutch society. So in his work, window, window reflections enable him to explore this idea while playing with distinctions between inside and outside, public and private, individual and communal. And the result is, I guess, what I would describe as an oblique urban portrait in which the city frequently figures as a ghostly, immaterial presence pushed to the boundaries of perception. Moving from streetscape to waterscape, Richard Rothman's photographs engage with one of Amsterdam's most enduring features, its canals which have historically served as the city's arteries of commerce and mobility, and which today, through the pressures of water management and urban development, continue to exert a strong influence on the city. Rothman's black and white photographs draw on the conventions of landscape photography and reveal the lingering presence of the natural in the heart of the urban environment. And the trees which dominate all of the photographs screen the city which can only be glimpsed in elusive fragments in the space between branches. Rothman's waterscapes represent a dreamlike re of the city in which the organic now overgrows the urban. Roaming the outskirts of Amsterdam, Joshua Lutz explores Dutch suburbia and the contact zones between the city and the country. And many of his photographs register the influence of American culture, capturing the incongruous, haphazard presence of Americana in Dutch suburban living. A vintage Cadillac in the driveway of a middle-class subdivision. A wooden Indian on the balcony of a boathouse. An oversized, metallicized Hummer parked on the side of a road. These outlandish objects all belong literally to another place, but they are all strangely, even uncomfortably present in this one. And this is particularly true, I think, of the Hummer, which in a Dutch context represents a manifestation of suburban paranoia and securitarian ideology, a militarization of urban space that has a long history in the United States. And just think, of course, of Mike Davis's uh, writings on Fortress LA. But a development which is only now emerging in similar ways in the Netherlands. So this image is perhaps more ominous in the Dutch context than it might be here. Other photographs in the series are concerned with transient or liminal spaces on the margins of the city, such as improvised dwellings in a vacant field, a wall of dingy advertising signs in a parking lot, or a highway underpass plastered with posters no one will stop to read. These non-places, or non-lieu, as Marc Auger would call them, emerge in Lutz's work as expressions of the failures of contemporary peri-urbanism, underdefined places where the proximity and the influence of the city become an obstacle rather than a vehicle for meaningful contact and exchange. The last photographer I want to discuss is Carl Woolley, whose series Amsterdam Night brings his interest in nocturnal photography to bear on the unfamiliar terrain of late night Amsterdam. And in particular, Woolley averts his eyes, or his lens, I should say, away from the overlit, overcrowded, over determined spaces of Amsterdam's nocturnal hotspots, such as the Red Light District or Light Supply. And instead, he prefers to seek out ignored and inconspicuous spaces, such as the entrance to a backstreet car wash or a staircase leading into an apartment block, the wet concrete expanse of a parking garage, or the waterside esplanade of a ferry dock. Reminiscent of a film noir aesthetic, and Woolley is also a filmmaker as well as a photographer these nocturnal scenes are illuminated by harsh artificial street lighting that contrasts against the surrounding darkness. And more significant, from my perspective, is is again the total absence of human life in these images. Like the depopulated New York restaurants we saw in Venenda Deru's work, Woolley's after-hours Amsterdam is strangely, almost impossibly empty, quiet and still, devoid of human presence and caught in a state of, suspend, of suspended animation. Now, stepping back to consider the exhibition as a whole, there are certain themes running through its outsider view of Amsterdam. From Gus Powell's Pedestrians to Joshua Lutz's Suburban nonplaces, and from Richard Rothman's Waterscapes to Carl Woolley's Empty Nights, The vision of the city that emerges is one marked by estrangement. Here, the dominant globalized image of Amsterdam as a center of sex, drugs, and golden age art is replaced by a counter-image of the city as a space of the ordinary and the unspectacular. And yet, and this really is one of the main points I want to make, and yet this counter-image is nonetheless in tune with the needs of the tourist and city branding industries. And not despite its estranging treatment of Amsterdam, but because of it. At one level, I would suggest, the exhibition feeds into a larger cultural, commercial dynamic in which, as Dennis Judd and Susan Feinstein have argued in their book, The Tourist City, quote, cities are sold just like any other consumer project. Uh, Product, And each city tries to project itself as a uniquely wonderful place to visit, where an unceasing flow of events constantly unfolds. Well, I think the New York Perspective show is precisely part of this dynamic. It's an attempt to create, or at least to contribute, to this unceasing flow of events, adding another stop on the tourist circuit between the Rijksmuseum and the Red Light District. But at another level, the level of content, the exhibition also connects to the same dynamic of city marketing, but in a more roundabout way. And what I mean is that it's becoming increasingly common and indeed necessary to incorporate counter-images of the city into urban branding practices as a way of both extending but also refreshing the tourist appeal of cities. For many visitors, going beyond or behind the established image of a destination city, has become an experience to seek out and consume. And because of its close association with the sex and drug industries, Amsterdam, or at least its image, has always had an extra degree of edginess compared to most other cities, And after all, there is no other Western city whose tourist identity is officially tied to the cheap availability of cannabis and prostitutes. So what the New York Perspectives exhibition ultimately offers visitors by creating an otherworldly experience of Amsterdam is an alternative to the city's already alternative orientation. Or another way of putting this is to say that the exhibition offers a vision of Amsterdam that goes beyond, behind the sex, drugs, and museums to uncover the hidden, forgotten, unnoticed city of everyday life. And the fact that the exhibition was so heavily promoted via the iAmsterdam website and also appropriated by the New York 400 celebrations completes the circle, suggesting that this experiment in transnational photographic exchange, like the mirror event in New York, was not just about urban aesthetics. It was also about urban branding. Now, it would be tempting to stop here, and perhaps you wish that I would. But I want to, st- I want to draw to a conclusion by going one step further. What I want to do is I want to link the photographs I've been discussing to a broader cultural practice and photographic trend that I want to call urban skimming. And to explain what I mean by urban skimming, I first need to respond to a recent journal article about the New York Perspectives event. In an essay titled Amsterdam Drift, I love that that title, Amsterdam Drift, the art historian Rachel Esner suggests that the show's photographers, and she likens them to Walter Benjamin wandering the dying spaces of the Parisian arcades, they succeed in demonstrating that the outsider can, quote, grasp the secrets of a city, secrets usually reserved for its inhabitants alone. Esner argues that what enables the artists to gain these insights despite being completely new to Amsterdam, is their approach to the city, an approach which she compares to the psycho-geographical practice of the Derive, hence the title of of her article, Amsterdam Drift. And the Derive, of course, is the technique of aimless drifting developed by the Situationists in the late 50s and early 60s to subvert the spatial controls of the capitalist city. Now, I agree with Esner that there is a strong element of drifting in the working practice of the New York photographers exploring Amsterdam. And I think this drifting registers in the images themselves, where there are frequently qualities of spontaneity and transience, as well as a deliberate turn away from urban spectacle. But I disagree that these American photographers let loose in Amsterdam for the first time, succeed in revealing secrets of the city. And this is quite apart from whether there are even secrets to be revealed, and that would be a different debate. I would also reject that idea. So, in fact, I would argue something quite different. I would argue that their work represents a deliberate and strategically superficial engagement with the urban environment. An engagement that is not designed to bring depth of analysis, but instead to record surface impressions. And it's this approach that I want to call urban skimming. Now, the concept of urban skimming is not mine, and it's one that I'm borrowing from the cultural studies scholar Shirley Jordan. And she uses it in passing in a recent essay on globalization and urban photography. Writing about the French photographer Raymond uh, Raymond Depardon, Jordan attaches particular importance to his project Ville Cities Stud, in which Depardon visited twelve major cities across the world, spending only three days in each city, taking improvised and impressionistic photographs. And Depardon's idea was precisely not to engage substantively with the cities he visited but instead to pursue fleeting encounters with them so he could document his first impressions in unspoiled form. And responding to these impressions, Shirley Jordan suggests that, quote, a new trope, that of urban skimming, might be posited to describe this project whose images express a brief superficial relationship to the city. For Jordan... This trope of urban skimming represents a photographic expression of the new transnational culture of hypermobility that globalization has made possible. And I want to end by suggesting that the trope of urban skimming describes much more than Depardon's project. It also describes the overall approach adopted by the two exhibitions I've been discussing where the treatment of the global city, particularly in the case of Amsterdam, this treatment is distinguished by fleeting, glancing, even gliding encounters with the city. So what the practice of urban skimming therefore reveals is not new insight into cities themselves despite all the claims to the contrary. This is what Esner is claiming in her article, and this, of course, is what the exhibitions themselves were claiming. Instead, what urban skimming actually reveals, and this is my final point, is insight into the way we are increasingly experiencing and perceiving cities in the era of globalization. A development that has seen cities emerge in the urban imaginary as ever more homogenous, interchangeable and aesthetically standardized spaces of transit and on that note I'd like to stop thank you that's fine okay so we have time for questions and discussions and I'd love to hear what you think and and answer uh, uh, any questions you have Uh, I I have been asked to to say that if you ask a question, please speak loudly so that the microphone can pick up what you have to say. But the floor is open. uh,
1: Can you hear me or should I? Uh, My first question is a very broad one, Christoph, and that has to do with what you will get into at the end of your talk, in which you have these two very rich and interesting exhibitions, but still single, modest instances. And then at the end, you generalize more broadly about your idea of skimming and so forth. And I, 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 I want to ask um, uh, a, 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 a sort of a general question about how you can further substantiate or justify the leap from these two specific, from from, from these two uh, exhibitions to the larger idea about skimming and about the nature of ur- urban spaces generally. And one reason I posed the question is it seemed to me that especially uh, the Amsterdam images were uh, uh, very idiosyncratic to the artists in certain ways. That it was it was hard. There was there was an interpretation of the city embedded in the photographs by each of the artists, and uh, uh, even if they're very. Gifted and, and uh, imaginative artists—it's still uh, one single vision. I mean, what 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 justifies? What other evidence might cite, or yeah. what other uh, experiences have you had that would justify generalizing in
2: such rich ways about these two? Decisions? No, I mean that's a very interesting question, and actually, thank you for asking that because I think it's it's, it's very fair to say that that this talk uh, is sort of self-contained, and then at the very end moves off in a different direction. But I felt it was important to add that different direction at the end because if it occurred to me when I was writing this, that actually is the bigger, more important point. And what I'm trying to say is what Despardon is doing in his, his, his project, this, this, this urban skimming project, not only connects to what I think these, these photographers are doing in these two exhibitions, I think it describes more broadly the way that we, all of us, experience, imagine, and increasingly act in the spaces or the globalized spaces of cities in today's world. Um, so in terms of cultural production there, there's a lot of evidence I mean uh, uh, I've shown you a, a case here or a couple cases from photography but you could easily look at literature or film in film I think a very good exa- example of urban skimming the idea of the fleeting uh, gliding glancing encounter with the city would be Sofia Coppola's film Lost in Translation and if you can remember at the beginning of that film when B- Bill Murray arrives in Tokyo and he's riding his car into the city and he's kind of tired and jet-lagged and confused and disoriented and just kind of resting his face on the window and, and, and the cityscape is gliding by. I think again, this this is a filmmaker playing with, but also engaging in a form of urban skimming. And what's very interesting about that film is that it never gets beyond the surface of Tokyo. And that's kind of the point of the film: that these these Westerners, these Americans, lost in the city, in a state of kind of perpetual transit, cannot have a meaningful encounter or deep engagement with the material reality of that city. It just it's not there. So 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 if you start to look for examples of artists, filmmakers, writers. Uh, Uh, any kind of cultural production that engages with the notion of urban skimming, either critiquing it, but also often doing it, I think you will find it everywhere. But it's also something that I think maps onto what we in our everyday lives are also doing. And today, for instance, I think I would be very guilty of urban skimming. I started this morning in New York. I literally glided in because I took a train. Tomorrow morning, I glide out. Um, um, I, I hope we have a profound and meaningful intellectual exchange, but I really don't think I can say that you know, I've, I've, I've had a profound encounter with Boston or, or Cambridge, Massachusetts in the time that I'm here. And this, of course, kind of describes the way that many of us as academics live our lives increasingly. Um, and, of course, this also corresponds to how uh, a business is done, to how information moves around the world. So I think this, this notion of skimming, is, it's a very playful uh, kind of word, and I don't think we should take it as too much of a critical thing. You know, th- there's value to skimming.
1: We don't seem to have a critical edge, which I assume you wouldn't back away from. The reason I mention this is that there's this sense, of, this sense of superficiality. You'll be happy to hear that Christoph's skimming included a quick tour of the Stada building. But it was just a (laughs) skim. And
2: I took my photos, you know. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about... I mean, this makes me think about the path. The path itself, not just the the spots you pass along uh, the way, but your path is becoming more significant now. Because we, uh, with Twitter and with blogging and with these things that are sort of capturing our experience, Mm -hmm. we don't feel so afraid of like losing the important moments. They'll all be, like if we stop in one place, like if we're on Forest Square, if we're tweeting about a moment, we're looking for little odd moments that get captured, and then they don't go away. Like, so we can kind of, I don't, does this make sense? Like, we sort of see the, the, the trail that we're leaving behind. We're not just looking for this one destination, like the Eiffel Tower, we're not just looking for the, to see the Statue of Liberty, but we're actually interested in, in people's paths, that the trail, and, and being able yeah. to go back, and kind of like Michel de in the you know, Walking in the City, that chapter that's kind of lovely and poetic, you know, this idea of these divergent paths that eventually get paved over, but we get to tread them, and there's something kind of empowering about that. That
1: makes
2: sense. It does make sense, and I think that's very, I think that's very, I think that's very interesting. Um, and I think it's also interesting to think about how these paths are mapped out, the various media in which they're mapped. So, so you know, things like Facebook, Foursquare, Twitter, etc. Is, is one way of mapping it. Um, in, the, in the exhibitions, uh, the Amsterdam exhibitions, one of the things that in the exhibition space itself that accompanied the photographs were maps of the cities, um, where each of the locations where each of the photographs were taken were numbered and specified and, and, and designed to, so that you could go and find them, and you could go out and recreate this 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 walk. And I think this is where I mean you, you cite the Certeaux, uh, um and you know street walking and the legibility of the city is 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 an important part of what the ciepto is talking about. Uh, but I think it's also worth bringing in the Deboldian notion of, of, of the dérive here because I think uh, one of the things that's very interesting about the way that we increasingly perhaps move around the world is that it's not always in the kind of you know, planned routes, the planned destinations and what something like social media might perhaps allow us to do is kind of retroactively map the unplanned journeys that we, that we perhaps engage in and I think that's a kind of interesting idea. And,
3: and the- the other thing is like we sort of feel empowered because now we're not just looking to famous photographers now we're able to sort of or or people to sort of make an icon of something we kind of can do that on our own we feel empowered to like take this one picture and then Through lots of discussion, we give it it meaning that it didn't have, and everybody can see it, and there's power in numbers. Well, I mean, that's nice. I think
2: that's an optimistic or or, or a very positive, because I I tend to look at it more cynically, like like this proliferation of images is actually causing a kind of evacuation of meaning. You know, and then what we're clinging to in our urban skimming lifestyles is the illusion of meaning. And that's precisely what I think these, these Amsterdam photographs are all about. These, 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 this is the surface. And, uh, uh, and, and the idea is that somehow we can project or find meaning in these things. And what's happening is that the true depth of the stories is not happening. So if you look at, there's one particular image I'm trying to find here, this image. Um, there's something very important missing. So I'll come to your question really quickly. Okay? Um, There's one really important thing missing that that, that, uh, Gus Powell doesn't get. This space, um, which is a new kind of American-style strip mall with a cinema and bars, and if there was an Applebee's in Amsterdam, there aren't, but if there was an Applebee's, this is where it would be located. This space is adjacent to one of the largest public housing projects in Amsterdam located on the outskirts of the city. It's Amsterdam's version of the Parisian Beaulieu. And in the 60s, it was designed as a kind of escape for the Dutch middle class, but that happened to to coincide with the era of decolonization for the Netherlands, and uh, it was filled with uh, uh, new immigrants from Suriname, Indonesia, and uh, parts of West Africa. And um, a black woman walking through this space for a Dutch person would evoke this, 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 this nearby housing uh, community uh, called uh, the Bailmar. And what's interesting about the Bailmar is that a lot, like a lot of the same dynamic in Paris where you had social and economic exclusion because people were pushed to the periphery of the city, um, it was until very recently kind of cut off from Amsterdam. The public transport didn't go there. But in the last 10 years, that area has become Amsterdam Arena. The Ajax Football Stadium has been located, relocated there. A giant train station has been located there. This huge shopping complex has been located there. This big, I call it ING City, There's this big complex of banking buildings has been relocated there. And all of this exists directly next to the Bailmar. And as a consequence, m- rapid transit, metro lines, train lines, all kinds of new forms of mobility exist to get people in and out of the, of the city. And it's really transforming the geography as well as the culture of, of not just the outskirts of Amsterdam but also the city centre. And an image like this would reference this whole story, all this content, all this meaning, if you, can, if you can read it there. But if you're just urban skimming, how can you possibly see that? So You had a question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure
4: it's a question or a comment. Maybe you have something to say also about it. Um, I'm struck by the fact that when I think of the urban, imaginary, in a globalized world. Mm-hmm. I, my images are full of people. Highly populated, not just an individual, and certainly not empty. So I guess the question is that why do you think, I mean, I understand your interpretation of urban skimming, but why do you think these photographers actually went after Completely depopulated images. I mean, thank you. It's really yeah. About
2: the urban <clears throat> yeah. No, I mean that's that's a great. You know, if I could have planted a question in the audience for someone to ask me, that that would have been exactly it. Because I think that really is the key. When you put all this together, the theme that emerges is not just estrangement. It's it's depopulation or de, the dehumanizing of the city. So how do you explain that? And and. Uh, um, a kind of long-winded way that I would attempt to do it, and I don't think this is the full answer, is to say this represents partly an urban fantasy, the fantasy of the, of the empty city in an increasingly crowded you know, uh, uh, urban world. But, th- but that's, th- that doesn't quite get far enough. And I think uh, um, a couple years ago, I wrote an article called uh, London Undead, and it tried to address precisely this point. You know, why is it that we are fascinated by empty city spaces? And what, what I would suggest is we are fascinated by them. And if you look you know, across visual culture, or really cultural production you know, across all media, you'll see there's a very long history in the representation of cities to depict cities in, term, in empty states. So where does this come from? And I would suggest it's partly a fascination with this thing I'm calling the urban uncanny. And the urban uncanny, I think, really, really plugs very directly into the tourist imagination. And a good example of that is... Uh, so in this article, the example I used was in London. And I, I took this, the, the film 28 days later about the guy who wakes up you know, in a coma and the city's empty, and he walks around empty London, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And I suggest that this, this fantasy of, of street walking the empty city without the crowds, without the people, is a, a very deeply uh, uh, um, embedded uh, urban fantasy. You see it, for instance, in the film Vanilla Sky in... Um, uh, the empty Times Square scene as well—it's the same thing, and it connects to, to uh, uh, um, the tourist imagination. And the, and the best example that I can offer you is the case of the London Eye, which produ- reproduces precisely Desert's notion of the distancing, estranging, elevated—you know—god's-eye view of the, of the city, um, and. Who here has been on the London Eye? You know, the big Ferris wheel in London. So when you were there, you noticed the William Wordsworth poem engraved in those big letters? Lines composed upon Westminster Bridge in which Wordsworth describes empty London at dawn. The city's quiet. Its beating heart is lying still. It's a kind of undead city, depopulated. And this is the only time that Wordsworth can ever find the city beautiful. Why is it there as you walk into the London Eye? It's kind of telling you how to look at the city when you're, when you're up there. And it's to me very interesting that London Eye is operated by British Airways or it has the corporate sponsorship of British Airways. What is the slogan of the London Eye? The way the world sees London. So it's saying when you go up in London Eye and you look down at the depopulated, defamiliarized, estranged city from this you know, illusory, voyeur god position, this is the globalized image of London that British Airways wants you to embrace, internalize, naturalize. And it's made even more kind of poetic by the fact that the ride is then operated by the Tussauds group, you know, the people from Madame Tussauds, who are all about engineering encounters with the uncanny. So all of this comes together, and I don't think it's accidental. I think it connects very much to our own uh, um, fascination with, uh, with the urban uncanny and I think it also connects to, I'm sorry this has become a, this has turned into a very long winded answer I apologize so one, one, one final little thing I think it also connects to, very much to something that uh, uh, Simmel writes about in his 1903 essay The Metropolis and Mental Life where he talks about the blasé metropolitan attitude that people have to develop when they live in cities you know it's, such, it's so intense there's so much stimulation it's such a Uh, uh, um, a kind of aesthetically uh, um, 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 aggressive and hostile environment that you have to kind of disengage at a psychological level. And what I would suggest is that in the contemporary post-metropolitan era, the era of the globalized and globalizing cities, that this uh, blasé metropolitan attitude is something that is really intensified and accentuated to the point where I think these kinds of images are maybe partly an expression of our radical disengagement with the social dynamic or the social dimension of cities. How deeply asocial we are becoming. You don't look convinced, though. <laughs> I'm not, because
4: there are many images full of people, and I'm still trying to understand why... Okay, I, I'm not disagreeing with what you say. Don't please so yeah, you trying not. to imagine
1: different way of looking at Amsterdam. Well, you know, uh, to take part in this discourse, uh, when you were speaking about films, I was thinking about the, the uh, uh, trope in so many uh, apocalyptic films or science fiction films of the depopulated city because of some catastrophe of some kind. And that's actually you know, a kind of a kind of recurring uh, topic in, in certain forms. Of that. But there, the empty city represents something terrifying. Or if it, it, it looks empty, but actually the undead
2: are still there in, in some sense. Well, terrifying, but <laughs> yeah. also sublime. So it could be terrifying in, in a sublime, and sublime kind of way. I mean, you know, this aesthetic marvel that awes and overwhelms. When you think of the day after tomorrow, is that the right one? When the world, when everything freezes? No, what's the one... Uh, or I uh, Legend, all, all these images of these iconic cities you know, suddenly rendered empty. What is the fascination? And okay, it may not be the predominant, the main way in which cities are visualized, but it is a recurring motif. It, it, it keeps coming back, and you can find it all over the place. Um, so there's something about it that has an appeal. So we have a yeah, comment back there. So we'll, we'll, go to you, we'll go to you next. So yeah? another is in, in the global thriller or the, the geopolitical thriller like the Bourne films and, and this kind of tax to cultural production or the economy of scale of the $60 million, $100 million Hollywood studio film where they, they try and shoot the protagonist in many global cities so that it sells in international markets, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and again Bourne films kind of come to mind where there's the protagonist against many geopolitical forces. He's on the run. I mean, this is just a, just a contrast differently. There's a, than the isolated city or, or the depopulated city, there's the protagonist, you know, with the major, major um, um, fight sequence in a very public arena. You know, I mean, this, this is I mean,
1: this is a contrast I'm offering to what we're talking about, but it might inform what we're trying to... Explore.
2: Well, I, mean, I, th- I think that's a very interesting example. And uh, certainly it connects... I think the Bourne films would be a beautiful example of urban skimming. Where for Bourne, the city is hyper-legible. You know, he, he can walk up to a train schedule in a foreign language and he knows exactly what time the local train departs from Platform 11 in about half a second. But he skims from, from city to city. He's hyper-mobile. And he's plugged in to you know, this global matrix um, so I think the Bourne films are a beautiful example of urban skimming, but the question of uh, um, them being very crowded cities and you know very populated cities um, is, is that, that is entirely the case. And what I'm not I'm I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that empty cities are the, are in any way a dominant way of visualizing the city. What I'm saying is it's one of the motifs through which we we culturally repeatedly imagine the city
1: what strikes me most about depopulated images of it the city is, is, the city the city city city. is how uncanny mm-hmm. they are in the terms you've mm-hmm. used mm-hmm. how how, how yeah. strange there's yeah. also the, the reality
4: of photographers who've never been to Amsterdam going to Amsterdam perhaps not wanting to take photographs of the biggest cliches there and having to find something also that is expressive of their experience without it being trite or already said, or, you know, and in a sort of interesting way, these are, then, not so trite. Well, They're more respected images of
2: Amsterdam. Yes and no. I'd say yes because uh, uh, I think that is very much the spirit in which the photographers were working. And I say no because the photographers were told where to go to a certain degree. So they're given themes, they're said they're told stay out of the red light district, go don't go into the city center. We want to see different parts, and hear the parts that would be appropriate. So they're pushed and they're guided, and they're told nighttime and outskirts, and, and go where we don't normally see Amsterdam. And 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 so it kind of makes it a bit am- ambiguous. Uh, how much of this is the photographer searching out, you know, new facets of Amsterdam, and how much of it is it following instructions? That's an important
4: set. That's, that's important information you provide.
0: I think uh, cities also uh, can be seen as mechanisms, and, you know, uh, you can see cities as populations and get rid of the architectonic. You can also see cities as mechanisms and get rid of the people, and you know. It's kind of a spectrum of possibilities there, and different people decide to look at cities in very different ways. And these people, it's very interesting what you uh, the way you're describing what their charge, what their their task was, because mm-hmm. the way you describe it is, you know you're describing it sort of physically go here, don't go there. It's a here and there, and so there's a lot of sort of spatial. Uh, Challenge in cities that uh, fascinates artists, and you know these stairways uh, going to nowhere, things of that sort, are all about this architectonic that we're all immersed in. And if we put too many people in it, we don't see the architectonic. Um, one of the things that you said that fascinates me is uh, somebody uh, provided a map to all these. So these are definitely not places that uh, when we look at them have any idea where you are. I mean, there is no map. The map is, but suddenly somebody's linking them with maps and saying, well, if you go to this spot, you'll see this thing. Mm-hmm. And you, what, what, what you'll see is what's in that photograph. And that, to me, is fascinating because somebody's actually trying to link them together. And so you can go to the, uh, uh, around to these various stations of the cross or whatever it is and, and look at each one of these entities uh, and that map will give you the orientation. But without it, it's like uh, you know Bama and in uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer uh, or something like that. It's just this, this endless set of uh, architectonics and spaces. And, but you know, I, I I can certainly appreciate this concept of the city as a mechanism as a, you know a set of physical orientations. And I think they.
1: What's interesting,
2: I think also in this too, are are the areas to which uh, uh, um, the photographers are being kind of uh, not pushed but but recommended is that they fit very much into the parts of Amsterdam that the city wants to develop as tourist destinations, as cultural destinations. So I'm not not quite sure where this handrail is, but for for Amsterdam residents, many of these locations are are, are recognisable and this for instance is the ferry stop to Amsterdam Nord which happens to be the, a kind of post-industrial wasteland that is being kind of redeveloped into you know, high-end, yuppie loft living. And MTV has just moved their offices there, and they're trying to make it the new creative industries district of Amsterdam. And so this very link, which is right behind Central Station, going over to Amsterdam Nord, is precisely where they're trying to get... Uh, 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 visitors, residents, people, traffic, you know, human traffic moving to. So it's no accident, I think, that these kinds of locations, and elsewhere, I mean, I can only show a small number of the images, uh, but Carl Woolley also goes over to Amsterdam Nord and takes all these photographs of kind of empty streets over there as well. Um, So part of the idea, too, is that these images, in their own kind of aesthetic, artistic way, plug into a larger uh, uh, kind of urban development strategy slash marketing effort that the city is involved in. Please.
3: I mean, it just makes me think, isn't that what artists do? It's kind of like Shepard Fairey. You know, Shepard Fairey, you know, who he is, who designed the Obama poster or or whatever. He, um, you know, got employed by these huge designers to, you know, he was a, a, a criminal. And, essentially, he went around and, and put things up illegally. He was of a graffiti his, A graffiti artist. You know who he is. Okay, sorry. I'm just I'm thinking, sure. So, he just does then he gets employed, and he becomes this marketing tool, right? So, but this is what artists do. They go in. That's what I mean. When I say, like, and people are starting to be empowered, they realize that, like, these places don't exist or have meaning unless we go there, not to get, you know, sort of silly about it, but they don't have meaning on their own. We go and we inhabit them and we find something about them. We write papers about them, take pictures and give them meaning. So and then and then that makes money. We're basically creating these divergent paths and then these the big money and the companies come in and the tourist agencies and whatever they come in and they pave a path over where the places, the paths that we've beaten in, you know, that weren't there before, that went off the grid. And
2: yeah, yeah. And, and this, I mean, sorry, the reason I went to this image is because what you were talking immediately made me think of uh, what's happening with art in the red light district because it's a very interesting kind of dynamic. At one level, there's an attempt at some very superficial form of gentrification. Um, at another level, artists are being used as the kind of, you know, avant-garde, literally the avant-garde in, in this process of gentrification. Send in the artists. It'll help to begin to legitimize, clean up, and, and, and uh, um, uh, make the red light district more palatable. And I think that's a deeply problematic strategy. It's not that the artists themselves necessarily want to be there, it's that uh, uh, um, the city is kind of pushing them there. And one of the g- really big problems that... that, that uh, uh, I mean, artists need space, and this is a perennial problem for, for artists, finding space in which to work. But by providing, by taking brothels, and the red light windows, and turning them into artist studios. It's a really problematic process, and a lot of the artists felt, and this is what this image is trying to comment on, felt very, very uncomfortable with the idea that you could say, yesterday it was paid sex happening here, and today it's art happening in the same space. And some of the artists... Also
1: paid art in the way that was it subsidized. Yeah,
2: yeah. And the city insisted that the artists leave their blinds the windows open, so, we, if you want to take it to that extreme, yeah. So, so these kinds of dynamics are there, and some of the artists were even finding out. Uh, and I've talked to some of the people involved to find out, finding out some really disturbing things about the spaces they're working in. There's one woman who found out that the this, the room that she had uh, in that room back in the 1960s, a prostitute was very violently uh, murdered. So it's not just that this was a place that's had prostitution for the last 50 years or so, it's also a place where women have been killed in this, in, you know, in this industry. Um, so using art in this very contrived, very manipulative, manipulated way to intervene in these kinds of urban design, urban planning initiatives is, is uh, I think very very controversial and it, and it really connects I mean this is at the heart of Amsterdam's problem it needs the prostitution it needs the drug trade, economically culturally even but it doesn't at the same time like it and it can't reconcile this image and what's happening now is trying to Disneyfy, and I use that quite literally because it's the Times Square phenomenon, trying to Disneyfy the Red Light District, making it family-friendly. This is literally the idea. We want kids and mothers and sisters and women to feel comfortable going to the Red Light District. Go there and have lunch. I do with my kids, but you feel really uncomfortable. It's not a nice place to be. There's some great restaurants, but it's not a nice place to be. And does it, you know, is it not more problematic to keep... That those same trades and activities going on but give it a, a sort of facade, a surface that, that makes it more family friendly
1: Christoph, one point also as a sort of skimming tourist although a great lover of Amsterdam uh, in a way one could suggest or argue that the perspective you're suggesting is at the heart of a contradiction that's been true of Dutch culture forever because when you, do, when you explore those, uh, those streets in the red light district Many of the most interesting of them all emanate, like the spokes of a wheel, from a church, mm-hmm. uh, which was there presumably before the red light district, so or, or at the same time as the red light district was created. So that this tension between the respectable and the disreputable has always, in some in some ways, hasn't it, been a kind of aspect of Amsterdam?
2: It's even really better. What's interesting is that the red light district began at the same time that Amsterdam started to emerge as a global force in the 1600s. So this, this process that we, or we call globalization arguably has one of its kind of origins out of the kind of colonial business enterprises of cities like Amsterdam. And what that colonial business enterprise in Amsterdam did was create its, the, the red light district. And the other kind of side of transnational exchange that the red light district often masks is that of sex workers – that from the beginning, women were coming from all over Europe, and now from particularly from Eastern Europe and Asia. And this is the kind of, you know, Saskia Sassen's always talking about, about uh, uh, a mobile transnational labor in global cities. And in Amsterdam, there is another version of this that is even more problematic because of its connection to the sex industries. But, you know, the Red Line District has always been a part of, of, of this, and it is actually also connected to globalization in a way. I'm not quite sure where that leads us, but you know. <laughs> um, I see that a few people are starting to get a bit itchy, and I don't want to keep people you know, in here too long. And what I might suggest is we kind of wrap up the, the discussion part, but if you want to talk you know, outside or down here in a more casual way, um, we, we, we can uh, keep the discussion going. Thank but you Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming.